Hey, what's up? Welcome to BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. Joining me today is John Chain, the former frontman of the legendary grindcore band Discordance Axes. He was also the vocalist for the bands Gridlink and Hayano Daisuke. He is here today to talk about his new comic book series, uh, or graphic novel series, Black Powder Red Earth, as well as his other more recent endeavors. John, it's great to have you on. Hi, John. Thanks. And uh, how would you describe your series, Black Powder Red Earth, and how did it first get started? Um, well, it's a, you know, it's somewhere between, the, the first series that I wrote was somewhere between like a hard crime kind of story and a modern sort of warfare story. Uh, some people who were reading it were saying it's sort of like Syriana meets Black Hawk Down. Um, and I, work, I wrote a second series, uh, which is now being illustrated, and that's a little bit more action focused. It's a, a little bit more focused on the actual operational side rather than the sort of clandestine side. Uh, and I'm actually about to start the third book uh, just based on the demand of the audience who heard I was going to go on to something else <laughs> when I completed book two. Um, how it got started, um, I was working on a, on a book prior to 9-11 called Sawtooth, which was uh, about special operations or my perception of special operations missions in the future. I'd studied a lot about uh, Vietnam at that point and uh, Mogadishu, uh, Balklands, you know, different U.S. special operations missions. I've, I've always had an interest in it. And um, when I, after 9-11, you know, 9-11 was very, you know, struck me very personally. Obviously, I, I live right, you know, where it happened. I worked down the street from where it happened, and I was on my way into the city and saw the second plane hit. So 9-11 um, had a pretty profound effect on my life, and uh, I continued what I had been researching uh, for some time. I met a lot of people who were going over, and they were, they were doing not just special operations missions, but they were contracting. And the first time I had heard about contracting, like military contracting, was through this gentleman who worked for a company called DynCorp, and he had been protecting Hamid Karzai for about, I don't know, six months when I met him. And uh, I thought that was a really fascinating other side to what was going on politically and with, with, I guess, a different way of approaching military operations. So I started to really study that, focus on it, do a lot of interviews. And I spent maybe, maybe five or six years just interviewing people, meeting people, and learning about the regions where all this stuff was happening, and um, and I started working on a new series at that point called Black Powder Red Earth, which ended up taking several forms. Uh, initially, it was a short story. Um, we I worked with my company Echelon. We tried to commercialize it as a game. Um, ran into some challenges there, uh, and what ended up being the first really concrete and you know, properly, properly rendered release, if you will, you know, where I, we didn't have to make compromises on what we, we wanted to do was the graphic novel. Uh, so do you see, uh, like, I, I know the uh, graphic novel paints like kind of like a, a future, it's like it's set in the future. And it's kind of like a futuristic, uh, like a portrayal of like the Middle East. Like what, so do you see this uh, Middle East you created in your series becoming a reality in the future or? Well, it's it's a next. Well, I mean, when I wrote the first series, it was I wrote it in two thousand nine, I think two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and um, most of what I predicted happened. 
granted i mean i'm not some crystal ball guy it's it it well there's there there was a very based on the progression of events in history there was a very logical i think it was very clear what was going to happen in iraq which is where my book was centered it was centered in the southern part of iraq um and the second series i wrote took place in syria and a lot of what I, again, the book is just going into production now, but I've been working on it for two and a half years. And that was another one where, where most of the stuff that I predicted in the book is actually already happening. It's happening faster than I thought it would. So it's, it's, not like, it's not like science fiction in the sense that it's like 30 to 50 years in the future. It is science fiction in the sense that it's predictive 10, five to 10 years in the future. And that's where, where most of the stuff is set. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, I learned a lot writing the first book that hopefully makes the second book more accessible to people. Um, you know, one of the most common comments I heard about the first series was if you hadn't ever been to Iraq or if you didn't, had never spent any time in that world, it was really difficult to get into the book because of the language and all the people that I was talking about. Because I didn't invent any of the characters. They're all real people. And um, so I, <laughs> for whatever reason, assumed at the time People would research all the names if they didn't know who they were, which turned out to be a horrible mistake because nobody knows. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the geopolitics of Iraq and, and, and Iran and, and, and how you know, the relationships between the Shia and the Sunni, it's almost impenetrable, the first issue. After that, it becomes a little bit more accessible. But we're actually doing a, um, a new version of issue one because you know when we wrote issue one in 2011, it was the first book that the illustrator Josh Taylor had done in that style, and he got remarkably better over time working on it to the point where when we looked at the first issue, we we're like, wow, you know, we can do a new new version of this issue with the the more updated art, which will look sharper. And then I cleaned up some of the story to make it you know more accessible to people, like sort of throttled down some of the names and tried to explain stuff a little bit more. So we're a director's cut version of that will be coming out later this year, hopefully to address those those earlier issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the goal of the series was to try to write something, a sort of modern tale that doesn't have all the, you know, Russian separatists and the, the sort of contrived things that people seem to put into, uh, entertainment to make them like the, oh my God, we got to stop the nuke type ending. It, it's a more, a more real flavor, a more like, like an actual day to day, what, what it was actually like. And, um, you know. I think I think that that broke a lot of rules of narrative, uh, which might not have been so smart to break my first book out. <laughs> um, well, you know, and 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 I and I, you know, you learn about those things by getting user feedback. So hopefully, the second series addresses some of that. <laughs> and uh, the act, the the people that uh, you used in the story, how do they feel about like their portrayal and everything? Well, one, one of the characters, Grinch, is actually based on the co-author of the first series, uh, Kane Smith. It's very closely based on some of his experiences and him personally. Um, the other character is based on a friend of mine who, um, he, was, he was killed a couple of years ago and, um, you know, doing some kind of side mission someplace. Like, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was never even really reported in the news, uh, which is kind of a shame because uh, he did a lot for this country. And, um, you know, I think he had been working on me with the story right up until his death, honestly. So he was pretty comfortable with what we were talking about. And, you know, many of the attitudes reflected by his character are the kind of way he felt about things. And 
and how I felt about things. Like like his character, sort of him and me combined, like mm. kind of our how we our take on the, on what was happening, and and the other characters, the other main character's approach was you know um, based on this guy uh, Kane. And actually, there's a, there's there's yet another character um, who is based on my wife's uh, hu- uh, father, and he had spent a lot of time at the World Bank, uh, and uh, had done a lot of sort of not on the military side, but on the development side, uh, contracting and development with third world countries. And um, you know, his character is very much reflected in the older guy in the book, the character Jr. He, he passed away last year also mm. like like the only one who's alive that's still that the book the first series and the second series honestly is based on is uh is kane at this point so uh which was your uh favorite issue and why um i think i think from a story and action perspective of the first series issue three worked the best it was the tightest story um and worked completely compartmentalized from the rest of the series um I think uh, I think you know I was there was a lot of information being sort of compressed and distributed to get get into the story in the first two issues and then the third issue had a really good mix of I think the story in the uh, in the action whereas and then the fourth issue is all action so I mean that that's 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 got its own challenges and is also really enjoyable I mean certainly it's the uh, it's the most violent. <laughs> <laughs> of the books, uh, I mean, tip, typically when I hear about people who like the series a lot, you know, issues three and four tend to be the ones that they get more into because they're more the more they're the more action packed. Like issue three is a very tense like story. It happens over the course of, I guess, about a day. Uh, I mean, the whole series was written in that time compresses as the story goes on, and I think I think a lot of like action stories kind of do this. Where like there's more breathing, there's more breathing room. They're trying to, they're covering a lot more ground earlier on in the story to really establish the world and the characters, and you know, so you have like events taking place over the course of like maybe a week or two weeks in the first issue, and then the second issue it's like maybe the course of a week. The third issue is a course of a day, and the fourth issue for us was over the course of a couple hours. So um, you know, a- a- as time compresses, things get a lot more intense and really sort of start racing. Um, and I think, I mean, typically I'm, I'm the guy who likes, I always like the concluding chapters in anything. Uh, I, I like definitive endings to my stories. So, so, so volume three is, is really nice in that it delivers all that in one compact package. That's, that's kind of cool. I mean, issues three and four basically take place back to back, like over the course of about a, I think of maybe like a 36 hour period. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like issue three the best, and the new the new series the new series tries to reflect that in what we did in that in that like, you know, a little bit less compressed storyline to start with. But again, this is just stuff I'm learning. I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of a new writer in terms of like actually writing narratives. I mean, most of my stuff is, <laughs> as you know, is like music, and you know, and and that has its own rhythm. Writing writing uh, writing for songs is is very different than writing for books or screenplays. So, uh, what writers and illustrators have influenced you in particular? Um, I mean, I can tell you the, the, the guy that made me fall in love with reading was probably Philip K. Dick. But, uh, you know, I mean, I read all of Philip K. Dick's books. I was uh, in college. And, um, and, and PKD, I mean, he just had so many really creative and interesting ideas about things and sort of exploration 
of, of what it meant to be a person. Um, and uh, very, a very interesting guy, too. But, I mean, this series specifically, I would say, is, is actually very influenced by two books I read when I was a kid. The first was Area 88, which was written by uh, and illustrated by Kari Shintani. It's a Japanese uh, manga. Uh, and it is all about... Con, like basically mercenary slash contract fighter pilots who fight for a, a air force in a country called Basran or no Azran Azran and ba Basran the name of, of the country in my first story is sort of a nod to that but also a nod to where the story takes place in the Basra region of Iraq southern Iraq um, and I think uh, I think I think a lot of the, the things that happened you know and again you, hindsight's twenty twenty I didn't realize this when I was writing it but a lot a lot of some of the the elements that are missing from my story, like like in, in Area 88, the main character is very conflicted about what he's doing. In terms of he because he, he sort of he sort of gets tricked into joining this mercenary air force by somebody, and there's you know kind of this whole web of intrigue between him and another character that 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 wants to get him out of the way from this airline they work at, and and the main character Shin ends up in this country of Azran fighting in this mercenary air force, and the story is about him kind of becoming more desperate. Uh, and and more used to the idea of killing people and and how that affects him uh, over over time. The, you know, my story is very much about people who've already become disaffected with killing people, and what what that means to become so disaffected mm -hmm. by by violence. Um, and and you know, because because you don't you don't get the, the sense. I mean, me personally, you know, I, I work I work uh, in a defense company as well. And we have we have great dis, dis, you know disagreements about this you know whereas I think that like you become desensitized to violence by committing acts of violence constantly versus like you know some of the other guys will have have the supposition that playing video games or interacting yeah. with or even watching movies like violent media in general desensitizes you to violence and I actually don't believe that um, yeah because it's it's very different like just watching it on TV or playing it. In a game to like actually hitting yeah, yeah. Like, like like actually hitting i mean like you know uh actually hitting something like the at acts of violence people in general i think are very uncomfortable with that i mean my me myself i've only recently in the you know i'm 40 years old now and i i only got my i got my first handgun when i was like 28 or 29 was the first time i ever owned a, owned a firearm in my life and then um you know i only started doing any kind of combatives or, or fighting martial training just just to see what it was about in the past like six months to a year you know it's uh it's not something that comes natural to me personally i was like a fucking vegan for like 20 years um but but uh sort of sort of tie off what you were saying before um uh two other two other people that had a really big influence on what i did um, were well, actually three that have to be mentioned. Y Yoshihisa Tagami, he was a a pulp manga artist. He did a lot of different, like sort of like just very good, what I consider really cool action books. Really loved his art style. He was known. He had done a book called Gray that Viz uh, brought over to the U.S. in the early, or I guess it was the mid '80s that he brought. They brought it over. That was a great book. It was kind of uh, one of the books that had influenced Cameron in writing the Terminator, and. Um, I also really liked uh, Joe Haldeman. He had written uh, a book called For the Forever War. It's a science fiction book, but it, it was a it was, it was one. He was, he, Joe was a Vietnam vet, and Joe was trying to write a book about Vietnam 
But at, when he wrote The Forever War, he couldn't write a book about Vietnam. He had to write it about a different war. And I thought, I mean, if you've never read it, it's a short read. It's like 300 pages. It, and there's a graphic novel version that's also fantastic. The Forever Wars is just one of those incredible books about about what it's like to fight a war. And I, and, I, and it had a long, a long sort of impact on me to this day. Um, and then I guess, I guess finally, the, the last and, and biggest influence of the past... I want to say 10 years or 15 years, I guess it's been now, was Evangelion. Um, because Evangelion, when I first saw it in... It's funny, I first saw it on Laserdisc, and one of my friends had lent it to me, and I saw the first episode and wasn't really... I didn't really get hooked into it right away. And I went to Japan, and I think it was 90, 97 or 98, we were on tour with Discordance, and all these people were at the show wearing the Evangelion t-shirts and I was talking to people about it because I was, I was big I've always been into anime I really like anime I mean it, it's it's one of the greatest art forms I think uh, consistently like you know I, I, you get a lot of dry spells but like you know there's always good stuff really interesting mm-hmm. things come out of anime over over the years and Evangelion was definitely you know while, while other things like Yamato I love Dogrom Votums there's so many different series Ideon Gundam you know all of these different series throughout history where they had these really great arcs that were I thought really smart like like Zeta Gundam is, is very specifically tied to what I do now in terms of how Tomio wrote that and, and what happens in that storyline Evangelion did something that was more than geopolitical it sort of it sort of really took a, a human dimension to the story and and laid it out there and I don't I don't think I was able to capture that in the um, in the first the first BPRE series which is which is a lot more geopolitical and more Zeta Gundam than uh, than Evangelion if you will um, but uh, but I mean the sec the second series I mean I'm striving striving to get there I think I think what uh, the creator of Evangelion did in with Evangelion specifically uh, and and not necessarily his other work. Was he was able to really create something very deeply personal, but at the same time, at least for me, I thought it was a very, it was a very profound experience, like about what it means to be a human being, and it's uh, it's certainly a high mark for narrative fiction that really I don't think has been equaled or 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 ever. Um, Though you know, there and I, I'm I'm actually referring to the original stuff they did. I, I've seen some of the new stuff, and I feel like you know, in some ways, it's diminishing the old stuff because it's so bad. <laughs> it's, it, I don't know what the hell they're thinking, um, but maybe they're going somewhere with it. But it, it, yeah, the original Evangelion TV series and the original films were were really pretty amazing things. So, uh, do you feel there's like a lot of good uh, graphic novel and comic book writers and illustrators today, or? Uh... I mean, there's certainly some. There's certainly stuff. Okay, let me let me back this up a second. So I've I've been collecting comic books since I was about 12 years old. And when I say collecting, that means not just reading, but actually, I knew the storylines, I knew the artists, and I actually had intention when I would go to a store and buy a series because I wanted to follow the story in it or or the the you know what whatever attracted me to it. I knew Peter Eastman, or, or Jesus Christ, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because I liked the, you know, I think it was like issues four through seven where they go off and fight the Triceratons and I thought that was so fucking cool and then I stopped reading it after that because it lost my interest. I, I knew Stan Sakai for Usagi Yojimbo and, and I, I read his book for almost, you know, my entire life until I stopped collecting comic books, honestly, about... 
maybe two or three years ago, I stopped buying individual books, and I, I still buy graphic novels, but I don't really, I don't have the space <laughs> as, a, as like a forty-year-old guy for all that stuff anymore. I had to actually get rid of a lot of my books. Just, you know, again, just no room for them. Um, you know, when I think about great works of fiction, there are some amazing graphic novels and series that have been produced in the West as well as the East. Um, I will say that right now, there's not a whole lot that that's really holding my attention. Like, um, you know, Stan, Stan Sakai has consistently made great stuff throughout his life, but he's one he's one of the few that. I mean, but he's ba he's basically just done Usagi for the most part, which is which. I mean, he owns that universe and he does a great job with it. But you know, I, there's there's no books I collect anymore, um, just because like I find the what's being written doesn't really connect with me. Like, I mean, I, there was a while Marvel Max books. I thought those were really good. I, I picked a lot of those up. There was you know, there's a lot of older series I liked like. You know, and, and like one-offs, like I know DC had a lot of stuff I was reading for a while, like Shade the Changing Man was big when I was younger. Um, you know, more recently there was a graphic novel, I think Morrison wrote it, We Three. That was incredible. That was just like a heartbreaking masterpiece. Um, the Unknown Soldier, uh, the original graphic novel series, uh, I think, who wrote that? I think Plunkett did that with, um, God, I can't remember the other guy's name, the, uh, the author. Um... He he used to write preacher too. Uh, I can't, what's his name? Jesus Christ. Uh, he wrote a lot of Punisher books too. I think British guy. Um, let me look it up real quick because now now I'm curious. There <laughs> uh, go. Unknown soldier DC. Okay, so the yeah the uh, Unknown Soldier series was written by Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis. Um, you know I like. There's a lot of um, like like little one shots. Like I liked Glimmer Rats. That was a 2000 AD thing a couple of years back. You know, Bad Company. I mean, I, I never really liked mainstream. Like I, I've never been a big fan of cape books, and I only have had a couple in my entire life. And they're the obvious ones. Like I love Dark Knight Returns. I loved The Watchmen. Um, there was a short run of X Men that I was pretty interested in. Um, I mean. So I think typically American books have gone towards cape books in general, so I, I haven't interacted with them as much. I liked, um, I always liked indie books, but you know, if it, I, I think, I, and despite collecting tons of, of, of books from you know Western artists and writers over the years, uh, you know, definitely my favorites still tend to be uh, Asian books. Like I loved Appleseed; that was great growing up. Um, and that was a Discord Saxy song too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean a yeah. lot of the old Discord Saxy songs were were were. I mean, we wore it on its sleeve. You know, the the the, the waters that I swam in, if you will, were were you know video games and anime or anime mm -hmm. and manga and comic books and and that's that that was the metaphor I used to write about things like that. That was that was that was how I chose to express what I was trying to get across versus, uh, you know, some, I, I think the more sort of traditional framework for a lot of these bands is more like Marx or anti-capitalism or, and, and it's a very naive understanding of some of those things. Um, and, and I mean, as a result, that's why I really don't like a lot of that music. Um, I mean, there's also some great stuff <laughs> that comes from that as well, but, but, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I think I think that that yeah like books like that had obviously a big influence on um, on what I was doing musically as well yeah 
So uh, what's the greatest level of uh, success you hope to achieve with uh, the series? Uh, the Black Powder stuff? Yeah. Um, in Black Powder, I mean, ideally, I mean, we've been, I, it's funny, like, you know, originally what I wanted to do was make a really cool video game. <laughs> that was, that was honestly my bit, my big goal for it. And, you know, we've been working, it's almost going to be 10 years in, uh, it's eight, eight years we've been working, eight years? Holy shit. It's been, it's been around eight years since I came up with the original idea for what we could do with the video game. And the first idea we had was, I, I think it was a, pretty it was a very original idea at the time and i think it was pretty bold um you know some of the problems we saw with combat games at that point like i mean at that point the only modern warfare game was counter-strike when we were designing our game and we said well you know from the combat side it'd be great to be able to use your sights and aim at targets it would be great to be able to shoot through things like you know that that wouldn't stop bullets um it would be great to have things like modifying your weapons so you can put different optics on them or, or capabilities like vertical grips and you know this, this i i actually spent some time at blackwater going through their their um their carbine operator and pistol operator and academy classes that they had um so i could learn all about firearms because i didn't know anything about them really i mean you, you, as, a, as a civilian enthusiast shooter i didn't really know a whole lot and i wanted to really understand all that before we designed a, a, a combat game and it started to really influence what I thought you could do with a combat game, like like just a small, I guess, combat arm style experience, like a first person shooter, Call of Duty, what have you. And you know, Call of Duty, uh, the World War II games. I think the second one was out at that point. Um, I, I I had liked the, I didn't really like the, I actually hated the multiplayer in the first one. I'd only played um, mostly the single player in those games. And I really didn't even bother to finish them because, like, I enjoy. I would enjoy some of the American missions, and then it would just, it just like, it just became like mindless after after missions two or three in those games. I just couldn't get into them anymore. Um, so we had, we had developed this whole game that solved some of those problems, and we designed a whole social networking architecture. Like, you would be able to manage your characters on your phone. Uh, it had a whole browser-based experience, so you could do all this different stuff. Where you didn't get stuck in the game, and you could actually be fighting in the game. You know, we had the concept concept of PMCs, where you could invest in companies that were fighting. You could take out bounties on other people. All kinds of different stuff that was we thought was really innovative and cool. The problem was we only could, we only wanted to build it for PC because or, or you know desktops, if you will, because console architecture was extremely controlled and really limited the degree to which you could do some of this stuff. So. We basically ran into a situation where we had we had a couple of companies who were pretty interested in it, but you know what we started to find out was you know two things. One was that the business of video games does not really favor the creator in any way, shape, or form. All the companies want to own all your intellectual property. They don't want to leave you with anything, um, and they they barely want to fund your your title to begin with. Um, you know they in all cases they had existing IP that they would have preferred we plugged into which we weren't as interested in I mean we'd spent a lot of time developing what we were working on and um, and it just never worked out I mean for for a variety of reasons and and the the truly upsetting part about it after we'd worked on it for two or three years is you know we'd pitched this game to so many different companies and you know everyone eventually passed and then you know things like Call of Duty Modern Warfare started to show up Modern Warfare 2 Battlefield 3. I mean, Battlefield 3 and, and the Call of Duty Black Ops 2, like the architecture for the multiplayer that they started to show in those games, literally was almost identical to what we were doing. I mean, almost identical. And you know, I'm not exactly, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know, I've never met with Infinity Ward. I have no idea 
you know, or, or Treyarch for that matter. I've never met with anybody who worked at those companies. So, you know, it could be just, you know, people working on stuff and eventually coming to the same conclusion. But, you know, when you look at Battlefield 3 and you look at the prototype screens we had working for our title back in 2006, and, and Battlefield 3 was one of my favorite games in the past few years. I, I had, like, over like 5,000 hours in a game or something obnoxious like that. But it literally worked exactly how I designed my game. And it was um, while they had vehicles and we did not. Um, it was it was it was kind of a, it's been very heartbreaking in terms of like you know we spent a lot of time building something and really ended up with with nothing to show at the end of the day. Um, we we developed a secondary game as we were doing the graph first graphic novel series uh, for Facebook, which you know again I'm not going to lie. I mean we basically did it because that's what we could afford to do, and we wanted to try to get. A, some kind of toehold out there for our, for our universe. We wanted to start building the brand uh, and making people more aware of what we were up to. And, you know, the game the game for what it was, was, was I think, pretty well done and it was pretty unique. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we heard from the, the users was, you know, we want to actually be controlling the guys. We want to actually be, you know, doing like uh, manipulating characters in a, in a virtual environment, not just reading about it like a text adventure. Because that's, that's essentially what... Facebook games were at that point. They were text adventures. Uh, so how did you first develop an interest in game design? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think the first time I tried to design a game, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was after I saw the movie Tron. And uh, I had no idea what computer programming was, of course, and because uh, I was like fucking five years old or six years old when that movie came out. And um, maybe a little bit older than that, I guess. But um, I think I, I tried to like the notion of a game, like trying to like rationalize what the design would be for like the uh, I forgot even what they're called now. Jesus, the tank, the big tanks with the I think that I don't know if they called them like equalizers or rationalizers or some shit like that. And they're basically the giant upside down U tanks. And I thought, you know, what a what a cool cool creation. And then they had actually they just had the regular tanks in that movie that were really cool. And, um, you know, Atari, Atari was out at that point, and Commodore 64 came out shortly after, and I used to pick up, like, Byte Magazine and try to make simple combat games using BASIC, um, and it was very clear to me early on that I, I was not gifted in terms of, like, I could write code, but I could only write what other people had already developed. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything on my own. I could, I could parrot what other people had done and put it together in different ways, but... I wasn't going to ever be some kind of like programming genius. I knew that very early on. And um, I started to get go, you know, I was, I'd always been very interested in art and done a lot of drawings. I started to like focus on that. Um, you know, video games always were there, you know, whether it was a Sega Genesis or um, eventually the PlayStation. Um, but, you know, I, I was always really big into computer games. Like I liked the Commodore 64. I liked, uh, I had the Amiga. It was a great platform. Um, and uh, as I got older, <clears throat> you know, I got a Saturn. You know, I got into like well, it's funny. Like I got into older style games, like the top scrolling shooters. I was really interested in those. Um, and I started making. I think I made my first mod, or I started working on my first mod projects in like '99 or 2000. Um, and I was, you know, had to learn. I think we were using what was it called, Quake Three Radiant back then. I used to make Wolfenstein maps, and um, I, I really loved the Castle Wolfenstein game because it, it provided sort of a, a narrative-based experience. Like, it had this framework where you were playing multiplayer, but you were actually 
trying to accomplish objectives, and I thought that was so cool. Um, I mean, because I mean, the thing about campaign games is, right, is you can only play them once generally, and then you, you sort of, you've played it, you know? I mean, you can, you can go back and play it again, but it's like watching a movie. There's only so many times you can watch a movie before, I mean, very few movies hold up to like, like, you know, multiple viewings, and very few games hold up to multiple playthroughs, in my opinion. Um, you know, even if it's just ramping up the difficulty, to me that often feels just arbitrary, and, and I'm not really that interested in it. Um, from the perspective of like discovery and, and building skills, uh, I think multiplayer really offers you a forum that, that single player generally does not. I mean, they're, again, they're totally different experiences, and I still love campaign games. Um, and the game I'm designing right now that we're working on is a campaign game. It's not multiplayer. Um, but, you know, again, in the same token, I think there's a there, – there's – I mean, I, I've always want. There's things I wanted to do from a very young age, and you know, be be in a band was one of them. Write comic books was another one. You know, make films was another one, um, and make game. I mean, those those were the those were the things that I I always wanted to do. And I'm I'm making I make short films now in the form of uh, commercial pieces for um, a firearms company called BCM. And um, you know, I'm I'm pretty big gun guy now. Um, I'm you know very interested in the military and, and like working in the defense industry was a sort of natural extension of that. Um, and you know, I, I make films for them, and I'm really proud of those. I really like how those have come out. I mean, I'm hoping that that's training me to eventually make like a BPRE film of some sort. Um, and I would say that you know, game design game design is I, I wanted to do it. Ever since I think I think I mean I've wanted to do it since I was a little kid. I think the first game that really electrified me was probably Syndicate. Though was the game where I was like, oh shit! Like you know, look at what we can do. And Syndicate had a huge impact on me. And that I think more than anything made me want to really make a game again. Like like I actually started sitting down and, and learning about things. And again, you know. Some of this stuff just comes back to like, you know, I, I got interested in it. I went and learned about it in the real world. And now I'm trying to extrapolate and distill it down to the point where you actually have a, a playable experience that in some way approximates the tension and the, the sort of violence of, of actual special operations. Um, and uh, I mean, I've partnered with a lot of different people to, to make that happen. Um, but reg regardless of all that, I think, uh, I, I mean, I... I think I've answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, moving on to some of the other stuff you're working on, uh, how, how, what can you say about the work you've done for Haley Strategic? Um, you know, Haley Strategic is, is a company I co-founded with Travis Haley, and I'd been working with Travis since about 2007, um, and I helped him develop his first company, uh, Simply Dynamic Tactical. And you know, Tra the experience working with Travis has been invaluable. I've met lots of people. I've learned tremendous amounts about um, what is involved in in the special operations and what is involved in you know building equipment for special operations. And, and in fact, you know, one of the possibly the most valuable thing is I've learned about designing exercises slash war games for special operations missions, which has directly come from and then influenced my work in actual game design as an entertainment medium. So, uh, you know, what I will say, you know, the, the three things that I, I get to do a lot of, I do all the creative at Haley Strategic was a lot of fun because it's, it's, it's cool creative to, to work on. It's really exciting. I believe in the work. Um, I think uh, the, the second thing is I, I, I've loved 
being involved in product design, I mean, some of our products I've had a lot of influence in, some I've had less influence in, um, but it's always, it's always a really, it's re it's really gratifying to physically be involved with making things that are used to go out and, I mean, for all intents and purposes, kill the people who, who were behind 9-11. Like that, that to me, like anything I can do to kill as many of those people as possible uh, at, you know, from the sidelines essentially, because <laughs> when I tried to sign up for the Air Force after 9-11, I was rejected because of flat feet, which sounds ridiculous, but mm -hmm. that was the case at the time. Um, anything I can do to kill as many of those people as possible is good, <laughs> you know, from, from what I can do. Uh, and then I guess the last, the last thing is, um, God damn it, spacing out here for a second. Um, the last thing would be the training programs and like helping to have, you know, helping to, to like create the frameworks and the design of some of the more advanced training programs has been really rewarding to see how those work out when, when guys go through them. So uh, the work you do for Bravo Manufacturing Company is kind of similar, right? Or uh, the, the Bravo Company Manufacturing is a purely marketing work. It's not, I'm not doing any product design for, for Bravo Company, and we're not. You know, Bravo Company doesn't do war games or anything to that nature. Bravo Company builds uh, very high quality military spec AR-15 type rifles, and um, you know, they 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 have taken that ball and run with it created you know new ergonomics blah 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 you know they, they've they've done they've done really great things basically with the ar-15 in general and um my work there is purely as a marketing person so uh do you ever plan on going back to doing music in the future uh i do not i think um i mean i i didn't i didn't plan to ever go back and do another band after discordance access either to be honest um but I mean, Gridlink happened almost by accident. I had no intention to do another band, um, and, and essentially Takafumi had been writing a lot of new material for for a band that wasn't going to be mortalized. And he asked me if I would be the vocalist in it, and I said yes because I really liked what he did in Mortalized. Um, and that first band was Heino Daisuke, which was actually like more of a thrash metal thing. Uh, and and Gridlink sort of came out of that. Um, like, you know, Hyena was like really cool. I mean, I, I personally, after, after 2001, when DA did break up, I mean, I didn't hear any good grindcore for a long time. Like there was really nobody out there doing anything that was even remotely interesting to me. Um, uh, I, I mean, I was listening mostly to speed metal and Japanese thrash metal. And that's the kind of music I wanted to make. And, and Gridlink was almost like a concession, to be honest. I, I wasn't really that excited about doing it initially um and it, you know it turned out to be something i was very excited about and very passionate about later but uh you know at, at my age with with the responsibilities i have and the other things i want to do being in a band takes up a tremendous amount of time and it takes a lot of money and a lot of effort to do it right and I just don't. I just don't have that bandwidth anymore for it. And it's. I, I mean, you know, anyone who's been in a band knows about the frustrations you have with people you work in a band with. And you know, it's it's a two way streak. You know, you feel like people aren't giving as much as they could be, or you know, they're underperforming in some manner, and, you, and you're giving as much as you can. Or you know, maybe this is just a hobby. You know, relax, whatever the deal is. But for for me, I just it's so difficult to work with people that aren't as committed as I am to what, what I'm trying to accomplish that I, j I just don't want to put myself through that anymore. It's, it's not worth it. Like, you know, when we finished, when we were recording Long Hannah, I went in there 
with the understanding that this would be the last Gridlink record and we were going to do a, finally a Heine Daisuke album and then I, we were going to call it quits. But after Long Henna, I just didn't even want to deal with people anymore. And, you know, some of that's some of that's me, some of that's them. But, you know, I, I'm expecting a level of performance with this kind of music that I don't think too many people are capable or willing to even attempt to do. And I really don't have a lot of interest to produce music beyond a couple of genres that I really like. And even within those genres, I'm only really good at one or two of them. <laughs> you know, at, at, at 40, I'm not going to be reinventing myself into Bruce Dickinson. And I know when we started doing Hyano Daisuke, that was one of the things I'd spent like two years trying to do, you know, more heavy metal style vocals. And, and Takfumi was pretty happy with what I'd come up with, but I, it just didn't feel good enough for me. And I said, you know, we changed up some of the songs, made them a little bit faster, a little more aggro, and then the screaming stuff seemed to lock right in with it. And I was like, okay, let's just go with this because, you know, I, I, we'd already spent like three or four years writing the songs and me trying to get the, the sound right for them. Um, you know, it, 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 there's only so many, so many things you can be good at um, in a certain amount of time. And... I think I've reached that with music. Like I, I can do this grindcore stuff really well. I could, I, I like, I enjoy. You know, I've had some black metal project things I've done too that I enjoy. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to go invest another like two or three years writing a record that, <laughs> that, that, that may never get finished. And and especially when it's not my passion to do that right now. Like if if I if I don't feel passionate about doing something, I shouldn't be doing it. I feel really passionate about writing comic books and, and books and movies and I real feel passionate about video games so that's that's where I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put all my energies for the foreseeable future so uh, out of the three main bands you were involved in which one did you enjoy the most and why well that's a tough question um, because to be honest when I was in all of the bands I didn't really enjoy being in any of them um, mm -hmm. you know and that that's I know that sounds like strange but for me, the pro what I like what I like about being in the bands is writing songs. I like creating stuff. I don't like performing it necessarily a lot. Um, it, it it is fun to perform it in certain settings, but in general, I like creating the music. And you know, doing doing Discordance Access while I loved the idea of being in a band, it was very hard. And it really strained my friendships with the people in the band. Um, you know, pe people who have been good friends with me and like, you know, we didn't talk for years <laughs> in that band. Like we just, you know, you grew to really dislike each other. And that wasn't, that, that wasn't a pleasant experience. Like by the time that the, when DA broke up after Joho, I literally didn't want to talk to either of the guys in the band anymore and was just so sick of like dealing with all the bullshit that was involved with being in a band. And we didn't even do a lot of shit like touring. Like we only toured Japan. Like that was like me, you know, we had opportunities to go elsewhere, but I didn't want to, like, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't care about touring the U S I didn't want to go to Europe. I mean, I had a job and, and I couldn't take like a month off to go lose my shirt. So, um, like, you know, I also really honestly had very little interest in any of the music being created in those places. So I really didn't give a shit about touring there. I didn't want, there was nobody I wanted to play with. I had no respect for anybody at the time creating that kind of music. And, you know, with Gridlink or Hyeno, um, as tough as the interpersonal stuff was in Discordance Access and the frustrations 
uh, of like not being able to like get it perfect every night when you go out and play. Um, it was it was like tenfold with, with those other bands. Um, there, you know, I, I you know I was playing with younger with with DA. It was all people who were basically my same peer group, my age. You know, we grew up together, and we'd made a sort of commitment at least to to do it and really go for it. And once once we got past like, I mean, DA was basically me doing everything for the first five years of the band, and it wasn't it wasn't until we did the splits with Plutocracy and Melt Banana that that it really started to become Rob Martin and Dave Whitty's band. Also, I mean, that, you know, when I when I was reading the interviews in in the DA book, which is funny because I, I never had talked to those guys about it. I only read about it through Andrew Childers. Was that you know how it really was my band up at, for them up until just until we did the Inalienable Dreamless when it really became. Rob Martin wrote like he wrote like that entire record. There was I didn't go in it at all. I wasn't even there when they were writing the songs. I, I specifically stayed out of it on that record. I waited till the whole album was done, or like not. I guess more like sixty to seventy percent of it was done before I came in and started even messing around with anything. And um, that that was a great record. I, I mean, again, I couldn't have made that record without the 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 years before it. And I think. I think it it ha has it was a very profound record for me when I made it in terms of how it made me feel and who I was after the record was done and what we put into the record and again a lot of that comes from from the Evangelion stuff because I'd seen Evangelion after we finished during that period between Joho and the Enable Dreamless and 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 that movie those series completely redefined in terms of what I wanted to do with any kind of artwork um, Grinlink you know when when it came out and Hyena Daisuke we're trying to completely take this from a different perspective, and and I I really love the second I I really love both Hyena records on some level. The production wasn't there on the first one, and and the ability I don't think was quite there yet on the first one. The second one I'm real I mean that's one of my favorite records I've done is the second Hyena EP. Um, I love the songs on it. it. It came out as about as good as I could is is that as that band could be. I think that was pretty much as good as we could get it. And if we did an album, I'm not sure what it was going to be exactly. Um, and that, that was one of the, the tricks about why we hadn't done a hyena record for so many years. That and, and nobody, nobody bought the hyena records. Um, you know, that was of course, all this stuff is coming out when people were really, really focused on just basically taking whatever the fuck they wanted and stealing everything they could and not paying for music and basically putting all the record labels out of business <laughs> unless the record labels totally see that was the trick you know the, the reason that certain record labels survived and this is i guess maybe this this also speaks to your question is the record labels that have survived are the ones that generally fuck the artists over or bear or basically are losing money hand over fist because but the guy still does it because he's got another successful job that allows him to fund what he's doing um all the most of the good labels at least that that we worked with are gone because people just started stealing everything from them i mean hydrahead were a passionate bunch of guys who loved music and wanted nothing more than to help bands make great records and for their troubles Everybody, uh, like, you know, I, very few people were buying the records and, you know, thousands, if not more than that, were stealing them all. You know, I mean, I remember talking to Mark Thompson at one point about, uh, you know, I'm not going to name the name, but it was one of the larger artists on that label. And previously, their previous record had done like, you know, 30,000, 40,000 copies. And then they released the new record, which was good and, and universally acknowledged as a huge step forward and a great album. And they sold three thousand copies of it, less than less than ten percent. And but you you know you go online and there's a million torrents of it, and it's like you know, 
I think I, one of the things that I, I really, one of the reasons I, I don't like doing music at all in general is, you know, and this happened with the last Gridlink record. I was like, it's like the fucking record is streaming online for free. You don't have to steal this if you want to listen to it. You don't have to steal it if you want to you want to get a taste test. It's right there on Bandcamp. It's fucking free, the whole record. And yet, within three days of the release of the record, there was over 100 torrents out there of the record. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, it's like the amount of money that the guy who's running Handshake put into this record and the time that we put into this record and all the suffering and sacrifices, it's like people don't respect that at all. They just want it, like fucking McDonald's or Walmart. And... You know, I know that there's a large audience out there that, that isn't like that, that actually cares about supporting the, the artists that are creating the stuff that actually has a lot of meaning in their lives. But overwhelmingly, people are just fucking shitbags, man. And and really, I don't give a fuck about them. And I mean, I've always said this. I don't make music for anybody else. I make it for me. And um, I think I think with 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 underground music, there's such this self-centered arrogance about fucking everything and you know, I'm, of course, finally, I'm starting to curse in the interview. It's because I'm actually getting upset. That's fine, yeah. um, uh, well, I, I get I get really upset about this because when I was really into the music when I was younger, you know, before there was the internet, and I don't want to sound like some old douchebag, but <laughs> but but you know, I used to write to the bands. I bought all the seven inches of the bands. Mm. I, I I mean, I cared about what they were doing, and I thought it was important. And I thought it was important enough to try to help these guys. Not just because I love the music, but because I thought they were doing something different and they were struggling and they were out there and they were really putting themselves out to do it. And I thought, what a piece of shit it is to just steal from these guys. You know, sure, you tape trade something and like, oh, fuck, this band's awesome or go out and buy a confidence. Like, oh, this band's great. I'm, I need to track down their other shit. You know, that was important to me. It was really important to find those people and be able to buy the T-shirt or, or whatever it was, buy the demo tape, you know, just to help them. Because I know how hard it is to get your start and to struggle. And I think people expect so much to be just fucking given to them today that so much of, of what – you know, it's funny. At, at like, you know, the, the thing used to be DIY or die, like, you know, like maximum rock and roll, this whole attitude of – entrepreneurial spirit which is ironically extremely capitalist and like you know when I, when I got older I started my own businesses I didn't want to work for other people so I struggled and created my own stuff and I saved up and you know I made all kinds of like sacrifices to, to get where I am and you know it's not appreciated at all like people just don't care they don't value what goes into making things and and, and I think I think ultimately like you know when you say do I enjoy being in a band um, I like making music. I don't like being in a band because being in a band is ultimately a business. And, and, and it's a business that is, you know, people steal from you and they think it's cool and they get upset if you get upset that they steal from you. Like they don't appreciate what you do for the most part. And I think, you know, and this goes back to why I always will go back to Japan and why I love Japan and the last Gridling shows were in Japan is because that is an audience that actually respects what you do. And they, they, they will come out to see the shows. They will buy the records. They will do whatever it takes to support the artist because it's that important to them and they know how important it is to have good art. And part of that, I think, is because they live in a society that's surrounded by art. Like, you know, they read manga, comics, whatever, every day. Everywhere in their culture is a wonderful attention to... Um, to just art, like art is important in every facet of their society, and, and you know you don't have things like Walmart in Japan. Like there's no equivalent to Walmart in Japan. Even Uniqlo, which is kind of a more you know budget mass shopping store, there is so much more attention to presentation 
and what they carry and how they carry it and how people behave there when you when when you're greeted and when you go there versus like like people here just want this like fucking warehouse experience of like give give me lots of shit for cheap and and, I, and that affects and permeates every part of this country down to the so-called alternative culture where you know again it just comes back to just not a lack of respect for a human being a human being and what you create as a human being so yeah, no, I didn't like being in any of the bands at the end of the day because of that. Because there's there's really there's very little reward in in being in the bands other than to make something you like. And it gets to a point where you, you know you're basically spending all your money, all your time, and you're creating really important what you would think is good. And again, I'm not ex you don't expect everyone to embrace it. It's not like some like oh I'm so special I made a record big fucking deal. It's it's a question of that, like people who do find it important the people that say, hey, this is important to my life, don't respect it enough to to go out and support it. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's like the, I'll end with this, you know, it's like the attitude of the $5 show. Bands cannot survive on $5 shows if they go on tour. You know, there's no fucking way. It's not 1983. $5 doesn't even get you a sandwich on a fast food joint, you know? Um, the, there's, there's got to be a there. You know, there almost has to be a turnaround in what people expect from music, if they want to keep getting it on the terms that they're getting it on now. And and maybe the science shows are the best example of like bands who did those shows seemed to get a lot of blowback from people. And I was like, fuck you, those shows were awesome. You know, we got to play. We didn't have to charge the audience, and everything was covered. And it just the only thing that that the company who sponsored it requested was that their banner, their name, be on the event. That's not unreasonable to me. You know, it's not like they were going to the bands. Hey, we need you to tone this shit down. You know, <laughs> they were doing grindcore and death metal band events and like hardcore bands. And 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 you know, there's a whole generation of people who grew up with that. That's why van stores are now in malls because you know there's forty some forty something year olds who who love this music and wear this clothing still and, and live that lifestyle the best they can. But it's everywhere. It's not underground. Okay. So I think that was a long winded answer as I could possibly give. Yeah. <laughs> Any, go ahead. Next yeah. question. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I mean, I obviously, you know, wasn't around like, uh, back in the day, you know, when grindcore and hardcore punk started, but like from what I've seen, like I saw, on YouTube, there was like a video of like an old uh, Napalm Death and Fear of God show. It seemed like there was more like of like a, a unity with the fan. Like there was more. It was more. People were more like I, I don't know what's the word. Like there was more like of a unity in it back then. I guess like people cared. Like people were more involved. I guess like. I, I mean, I, I'll be yeah. honest. I can't speak to Europe because I I I didn't go to yeah. I didn't go to Europe till fucking 99 maybe 2000 uh was my first time there and i worked i worked and lived there for about a year and um you know that kind of that that kind of music had become much bigger at that point it was more i don't want to say commercialized but it had a larger audience um i mean you could i, I remember going to, to tower records to buy a morbid angel record on day of release you know you could buy a discordance access record in tower records at that point so that was that was a you know that was that was and tower records was like a bigger record chain they had more underground stuff too so it was you know not totally unexpected but i will say this um when i grew up when 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 i was a young guy and I, my first band sedition was around um we played shows and you know nobody knew what the fuck we were doing like it was so marginalized like like the you know grindcore i mean 
you know, it didn't it didn't really have an audience, if you will. Like people people were getting into Napalm Death because of Harmony Corruption, which was you know arguably one of the, the that was the, the end for that band. Um, <laughs> they uh, you know I mean. Utopia Banished was kind of an interesting turnaround for them, and that became like Napalm Death Part 2 or 3, depending on how you look at it. But um, they, you know, people people weren't really interested in the, like, that, that B-side of scum, that, like, fucking 30 seconds of just, like, you know, whirlwind of noise. And 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 even when, when we played with ASIC, you know, like, the audience was not there. Like, I remember the first show ASIC did in New York, um, we, we opened for them. It was us, Rorschach, Merrill, and, and ASIC. And... You know, there was like five people downstairs when we played. Then, then Merrill and Rorschach played, and the place packed up. It was, you know, it was ABC No Rio. Everybody was there. Everybody knew them, and you know, they were the local heroes. And then Asik played, and like people didn't clear out, but like the crowd just stopped. There was like one or two me and like one other kid in the crowd was like like going going wild for Asik. That was it. Like it it it, it never had that like acceptance and you know i mean even when da happened we played in numerous shows that nobody ever showed up to like you know five people ten people the first time we toured in the states with melt banana we played i think three shows of which there was a total of like maybe 40 people maybe 50 people and most of those people were at the last show in massachusetts which is like nightstick and drop dead you know people I don't think there was a large audience for this kind of music, certainly on the East Coast for a long time. I remember when we played the Fiesta Grande, it was the first time we played in the States where there was a large audience. And I was I was pretty shocked at it. You know, we well, we played with Man as a Bastard, I think, when they came out West. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, or East, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ. And, you know, they, they're a great band, man. I fucking love them. They were, they were really interesting. And there was a huge audience for them. And, you know, we would guilt by association. People were at that show to see them, and they, they had stuck around for us. Uh, even the Inalienable Dreamless record release party, you know, one of the things everyone's like, oh, man, you guys are so big, blah, blah, blah. I was like, the fuck we were. Dillinger Escape Plan opened. They played right before us. That was their audience there. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> our audience. And, and, and quite frankly, um, you know, I, 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 I don't uh, – I mean, maybe I don't blame them for not being our audience. That you know, we're not, we weren't really an accessible band. There was no slow parts in what we do, and and really, you know, you talk about community and sense of community. I think, I think even like Dave was was a very community oriented guy. He knew a lot of people in the quote unquote scene. You know, he was very friendly, outgoing. Rob was a complete introvert. Didn't talk to anybody in terms of the music. Knew nothing about it. Lived a completely separate life. And I'll be honest. All of the people I knew were overseas. All the people I communicated with on a regular basis were all in Japan. Because, again, that's where the interesting music for me was happening. It wasn't happening in America. So I didn't know anybody over here. So and you knew one of the uh, members of Unholy Grave, right? I think you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm going yeah. to see them tonight. Um, I mean... Nice. I, 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 again, because back in those days, like, there weren't a lot of grindcore bands. And, I mean, our, again, arguably today... Like a lot of bands that operate, they call themselves grindcore bands. I don't, I don't think of them as grindcore bands, and it's because yeah. they have a lot yeah. of, they have the slow parts and the mosh parts that, you know, what I consider to be the more accessible parts of the music. And and for me, and you know, the whole reason I do these kind of bands is, you know, my obsession with speed is that I think, you know, and this is why I like black some of the black metal stuff so much is because there's so much room for expression at when you're at flying like an SR seventy one. And just fucking killing it, but people just don't do it because they don't they don't build up the chops or they don't challenge themselves enough to try to create that range at that speed. And you know, because 
I mean, I, I've made really angry sounding records and I've made records that I think have a lot more range than that. And, um, you know, I, I really, I mean, I like a lot of the records that I, I, I've, I've performed on over the years. And I mean, I guess that's natural, but like the, the you know, I, the ones that I, I appreciate the most are the ones that had the most range. Like the ones that it wasn't just me being angry the whole time. And the music wasn't just pure, pure fucking, you know, destruction. Uh, because there's only so much, there's only so much room to explore that. And I think the bands that tend to get popular, at least on the East coast and probably, I don't know about the West coast as much, but, um, in the East coast of the United States, it's, it's people are, are waiting for those breakdowns. They're waiting for the stuff that they they're familiar with. They can lock into it. You know, it makes them comfortable. It's like, it's like, yeah, I get to be a fucking robot and I get to like, you know, stomp on the floor and, and do whatever. And, and oh, like the, the, dun, 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 bree, bree, yeah, bit, like, the, yeah. Wink, wink, like, uh, uh, wanking the cadaver. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, and, and so much, so much of what I hear today is also basically just derivative, in not a good way, of what what DA and Human Remains were doing back in the the mid to late nineties. You know, I mean, I've heard Witty say that a couple of times that like you know all the bands he was in up until Municipal Waste were ahead of their time, and you know a refreshing thing for him about Municipal Waste is was that it's you know it's what he loves to play like that hardcore punk experience but you know and people get it like you know municipal waste is a genuinely popular band it's not necessarily challenging uh but it doesn't have to be and he's cool with that whereas i, I you know i wouldn't be comfortable with that i can't i can't make stuff that doesn't challenge people because i want to be challenged whether that's you know whether that's the physicality of how you do it or the execution of how it's played or or the dynamic live you know what i mean yeah and uh but like in uh one thing about like like the uh older grind bands or like the the you know the grind core bands is like play like the older styles like a lot of them like they have like kind of like the the aggression from metal but they kind of have like like lyrically it's more like it it doesn't have like um like a lot of the lyrics didn't have like the same like you know like the tough guy thing or like the kind of like it, it was the lyrics of like ass suck or whatever like were a little bit more like uh real i guess in the sense like the way like hardcore punk or like even like early napalm death like the lyrics are kind of like something you know that would come out of like you know a negative approach album or whatever like i don't know well, I mean, I think I think certainly Asuk was a more intellectual band in terms yeah. of how they were writing. Um, I mean, then there's bands like Capitalist Casualties who are just like like when I think of Capitalist Casualties, I think wow, that like that first record by them, the Disassembly Line. I mean, that's a fucking hardcore punk record. It's really got the how a lot of people felt, you know, myself included, really just raw and honest. And it's it, it's such a great album. And you know, it's interesting to me like what you were saying because a lot yeah a lot of the the sort of what grindcore became about tended to be one of two things like this very marxist left-wing politics or or gore right like those seem to be the two things that everybody could agree on um and you know i don't think most of the people even really understood what they were saying or or if they did it was like very abstract you know like like you know a, a perfect perfect example is the whole the whole war is bad thing that you get in most bands is just not interesting to me. And, and, you know, because that's, that's a very one dimensional concept that war is bad. It, it, it does, the, you know, 
it doesn't, and I think I think this has really been the trapping of grindcore in general, or or music in general, really, is that it's so one dimensional. It's really it's all become bumper stickers. You know, it's not like like the Dead Kennedys. When you listen to the Dead Kennedys or like Black they were Flag, actually thought out what they were saying. Politically. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of meaning in those records. I mean, Jello Biafra, whether you no, agree with like him or not, he's a smart fucking guy. Like Republicans, oh, I don't like this. Blah 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 blah. I just I don't like this because you know, oh, anarchy. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, it's like a party. It's a party line now. It's not. Yeah. It's not necessarily. It's not necessarily thought out like like again like those those the what those guys were doing before. Like I mean, Amoebics, like a discharge, Agathocles or Agathocles. I, I thought had some pretty good uh, political lyrics. Yeah. I you know it's funny. I I I haven't heard them in so many years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I, I barely even remember what they sound like. They they were definitely one of those early on grindcore bands though, like where I, I you know, I, I remember hearing them and thinking, Well, this isn't grindcore, it's almost like death metal or punk rock or something, um, with some blast beats. Which which again has later on I think a lot of people think that's what for them that's what grindcore is. So uh how did Discordance Axes develop its unique sound? Because obviously like it had a sound that kinda like differed from other grind bands that had kind of like that uh, experimental kind of sound to it so how how did it develop um how did it develop well um i know when we started the band um rob martin had said to me he's like well what's going to be different about our band versus all these other bands and i said well the guitar sound because rob was a really interesting guitar player he wrote really interesting music um I, i mean I don't know. I don't know if experimental would be how he thought about it. I would almost leave that for him to discuss. But I would say that you know, Voivod was was a huge part of of what we did back then. Like Voivod was was very instrumental. Like how they explored different things, I think, led to us exploring different things. Uh, it gave us like that courage that to go out and really challenge things. Um, you know, but I, I will say it's you know experimental is is maybe not, is definitely not the right word. It's really it's it's more like the courage to actually make something that sounds like you, and I don't think a lot of people have the balls to do that. I think that's really really hard, and it's not it, you know it's just it's just not <clears throat> it's not easy to make to find because you got to figure out what you sound like. I guess is the first the first thing, and that's true of Takafumi also. I mean, Takafumi was very different than Discordance because. He had a very deliberate idea of what he wanted to do from the beginning. He just didn't. I just didn't understand that. It took me years to get what he was he was going after. But he had already mapped out in his mind when we were doing Amber Gray what the next two records, how they were going to grow. Like he he knew that. He he had it. He had it without a doubt in his mind. He knew exactly where he was going with this stuff. Uh, I think Rob. I think with Rob, it was more of a. It was just sort of like we were we were we were go as we were going along we were kind of making things up and you know we had a pretty high quality bar internally of of things you know so if something didn't sound particularly interesting to anybody in the band it got cut like we we cut a lot of material I mean I want to say that there was a there there's at least ten or fifteen DA songs that never made it out onto record that we even recorded let alone got out of the studio with um, and you know there was at least. We cut two songs from the last Gridlink record in the in the mix, um, and we'd cut a couple of other ones on the earlier records as well, uh, just because again it's like that 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 quality bars. Hino also had I think three or four songs that were never released because they didn't they didn't hit the right notes. So, 
I don't know if that answers that question. <laughs> the best I got. So uh, what was it like playing at CBGB's when it was still around? I really liked playing at CBGB's. It had a good sound system. Um, it was a good stage. I liked the people who worked there. Um, you know, the audience was pretty cool there. I, I mean, honestly, of all the clubs I played at New York City, that was my favorite one to play at. And uh, so, I obviously, like you said, there were a lot of bad experiences. What were some of uh, what was the better experiences like being in Discordance Axes? And the good experiences. Um, I think when a record came out was always a good feeling. I like I liked having like that sense of completion. Like you worked on it, you made it, and it, it came out. That was always very satisfying. Um, and uh, think, yeah, the, when the records come out is probably the best feeling. I did like playing in Japan, um, though. Even even some of those experiences were weird. Like on the on the second tour, uh, I mean the first tour, Dave didn't come with us, which was really weird because he had quit the band, and then um, we we had had this whole crazy lineup shuffle right before we went there, and he was going to try to come with us at the last minute. So you know the shows we played on the first Japan tour for as good as they were, they could have been better. Um, the second tour, Rob had quit, and uh, you know there was a sort of like bad taste in my mouth about the whole thing like i i wasn't really into playing the shows as much i ended up getting getting into it as we were getting closer and closer to the end uh of that tour uh but i i, I fucking smashed my hand open at one of the shows and a pipe and had to like hold my fucking finger together with some duct tape till i could get to a hospital uh yeah that, that was fun uh <laughs> so that, that kind of sucked and then, and then the third, the third tour, the last DA tour in Japan, I got like the flu maybe day three in or four into the tour and started having like delusions, <laughs> which was really fucked up. That didn't go well. Um, you know, the shows were great, but like, I was just like, I mean, I, I was having like paranoid fucking schizophrenic moments or some shit. Like I was so sick and the, um, the, uh, you know, being in grid link, I, I I enjoy you know even even yeah you know it's like it's funny man like really the best part of being in the in any of the bands is releasing the records because all the time that you spend with the other people on the road or doing anything else is just there's so much like there's so much baggage attached to it and <laughs> and like I remember like even even practicing for Long Henna which I was really excited about and like love the record. The fights we had in the studio and my level of frustration and aggravation with with the process was was like I, I didn't even want to fucking be there at a certain point. <laughs> I was like I was like why am I doing this shit? <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess like uh, being around any group of people that long a time can just. <laughs> yeah, I mean you yeah. know there's creative disagreements. There's a you know it comes down to what I was saying earlier. You know you start to. You start to really feel like when you get, when I put as much into this as I do, I start to really feel like that when I start when you start to feel like other people aren't contributing to that same level, it gets incredibly frustrating, and you start to take it personally. Um, and I think I think in part of that is because not everyone has the same level of investment in what you're doing, and I, I mean I guess that's natural. Like there's you know just because just because it's the most personal record I've ever made or like the guitar players ever made. <clears throat> doesn't mean that's the case for the bass player or the drummer or vice versa. You know what I mean? Um, and 
that is that is something you have to deal with. It, and it doesn't matter any creative endeavor. The more people that get involved with it, eventually it's just going to be a job to somebody. You know, it's not going to be what they care about down to their to their bones, and they 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 simply don't have the ability to. They don't have the ability or or interest to to give a level of commitment that you give to the stuff, and that is a very frustrating experience being the people in that group that do give that level of commitment. And you know, uh, they they used to call me Sergeant Chang in Discord and Saxus. That used to be my name because I was such a fucking douchebag <laughs> about getting getting us to where I thought we could be. And the process that was involved in it. I mean, the band broke up on bad terms two, three, at least four or five times. Like, bad enough terms where, like, the first time Dave quit the band, he st he told me later on he was about ready to kick my ass in the studio. He was ready to just get up and punch mm -hmm. me in the fucking face. And he had to walk out and leave. He didn't even come back till the next day. He was so upset with me. Um, and it was because I was pushing him so hard to get the performance we I wanted and we needed, I thought, to sound the way we could sound. And we didn't get that until Ulterior. Ulterior was, I think, a turning point for him where he realized, hey, you can make a record that sounds this way and I can do it. There's The only thing limiting me from doing this is myself. And this, for where we were as a group of people at the time, that was the record we wanted to make, you know. And then... And you know, you know, you hear Rob, I hear Rob Martin talk about it. He really didn't like any of the records because he never, he never could play it exactly the way he wanted it. Because the way we would have to do those records in these like cram sessions, he'd burn his hand out. You know, Tak Fumi did the same thing when he recorded all the Gridling records. Like he lost the use of his hand for weeks after after recording the records. And like we would try to play shows after we recorded and they were a disaster because Takafumi couldn't play the songs properly. And then as soon as he would get lost, everybody else would get lost. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it just turned into a clusterfuck, you know, uh, exacerbated by other issues because, you know, you're not playing in like, you know, <laughs> live, live settings are rarely what you want them to be in terms of the sound and the mix on stage. Um, and we didn't know our songs well enough that if one person went off timing, man, the whole thing just turned into a fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> so do you uh, do you feel disappointed that Discord is actually split up when it did, or do you feel it ended at the right time? We were going to do another record eventually, and uh, we did not do it because Rob was no longer able to play music anymore. And um, I don't know what we would have done next. Ikaruga was the, the the first song of what was going to be the next album, and it's our best song. So in some ways, I I don't know what else we had in us. I think we could have had another pretty great album. Uh, we weren't going to go the death metal route. We weren't going to slow down. I know that. Um, but I don't know where it, what exactly it would have been. So I do know uh, a couple of years ago, we talked very seriously about doing a Discord and Saxon reunion shows, like a couple, because we never played Japan with the original lineup. And the whole idea was like, Let's go. Let's let's reform. Do like you know Maryland Death Fest or something like that, like a big festival in the states, so you know a lot of our Western audience can see it. And then we would go to Japan and play Tokyo and Osaka because those were those were our that was our crowd. Those people loved us. They came and supported us for years. Let's go and do it with the original lineup. And Rob had four or five songs he had written 
in the intervening years that were new Discord and Saxa songs. So he, he got his mojo back. He was willing to go out and do it. And then Dave, Dave had complications with his tendon. I think it was tendonitis, and he has carpal tunnel as well. So for him, doing doing that kind of music is just a no go. And we could we didn't want to go back and do it without him because that would have defeated the whole purpose. So um, I think there is another album in the different people in Discordance Access if we wanted to do it. But I think again, I think it comes back to the same thing I was saying before. I don't think. I would, I would, I it would be. That's one of the only things I would come back and do another record with. Would be a new DA record because I'd be interested to see what we had. I think Rob Martin would probably be into it. He would write a new record as well. It would, we, we'd probably never play it live, but we would at least write it. And then if Dave, if Dave could get, you know, if he could, if he could play the stuff, we would bring him back into it too. And I think it'd be really interesting. But. I, I, again, you know, the, there's physical limitations. I mean, we all we're all like you know fucking forty plus years old at this point too. You know, uh, Dave Dave doesn't have kids, but me and Rob do. Um, you know, so there's a lot of limitations on what you can actually do with yourself once you have a family you're leaving behind. You know, that there's just responsibility you have to take care of there. And you know, no, I mean, no joke. To prepare to do one of these records is like a year to two year commitment to like build yourself up to do that record. You know, it's not something I can just like if somebody called me tomorrow and said, John Chang, here's a million dollars. Go. I need you to perform, you know, for fucking, I don't know, some major band tomorrow. And you'll do the one show and it'll be great. I'd be like, I probably can't do it because I haven't done those kind of vocals in almost eight or nine months now. I mean, like we did we recorded we September was when we did Long Henna in Japan and I did some follow-on vocals in October, like one or two other parts. I, I, I re-recorded one or two of the songs because I didn't like how they came out, like, you know, with that month perspective between the recording and listening to it. Um, but, yeah, it's been October since I've done anything like this, you know. So uh, are you disappointed that uh, DA never got to do appeal sessions? You know, it... it <laughs> That that would have been a super cool thing. John Peel ran a great show. He did some awesome stuff. Um, I, I mean, if we had done one, it would have been cool because we would have gone back and we would have done like stuff from like Ulterior with mm. actual distortion on the guitars. <laughs> it should have been fucking awesome. That would have been fun. Uh, so uh, is there any final thoughts or things you like to say? You want to plug uh, your book or whatever or? no no i mean like you know if people want to check it out it's all on amazon i try i like amazon as a platform because it's it's universal it's it, you know there's no place in the world you can't access amazon and uh you know the book is available and i think i think the book is actually available in every amazon in the world i think i know it's available in uk i know it's available in germany um i know it's available in america i think it may even be available in japan i'm not 100 percent about that but you know it's 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 uh, it's what I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I mean that that like most of my energy is built built. It's like you know, it's like being that's my new band, Black Powder Red Earth, and I'm doing video <laughs> games with it. I'm doing books, and I'm trying to do some some short films and stuff with it. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully that that'll be the next thing I'm successful at uh, with any luck. And you know, I mean, certainly certainly the old records are out there. You know, they, they, I, I hope they've held up well. I know that Hydra Head has repressed some of them on vinyl, which seems to be like a, a very popular th thing among people these days is, is records have made a resurgence. Um, 
yeah, I, I'm, I don't know. I like, uh, I mean, thanks. I guess thanks for doing the interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no problem. And, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, it for today's episode of, uh, BSing with Sean K. Uh, tomorrow I should be interviewing Jeff Gillette. Uh, we, we tried, I tried interviewing him Monday, but there were some technical difficulties. Uh, he's a sound producer that's been in the business for, uh, many years and he's produced, uh, Johnny Cash and BB King. And now he's working on an album with Joe Pesci, uh, so we should be doing that tomorrow. Um, and I should be interviewing uh, Nancy DC or Nancy Munez, who's been involved in like a lot of animal rights activism and environmental activism over the years. Uh, she agreed to be interviewed. She uh, we haven't picked a date yet, but we should be organizing that soon. So yeah. Uh, Keep on the lookout for that, and uh, I'll see you. I'll well, you'll hear me next time. All right, bye.